The material in this podcast is for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for professional medical advice. You should not rely on this information to make any medical-related decisions. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a doctor-patient relationship, and nothing should be taken as specific medical advice for any given person. I hope you enjoy Marked Medicine. Hey, Mark. I have a question. Okay. How many times do you think I've asked you that question? Do numbers go that high? I doubt it. And from that concept, the idea of marked medicine was born with Dr. Mark Brulte. And with Amanda Brulte, my favorite nurse practitioner. And you're now listening to Marked Medicine. Hello and welcome to this episode of Marked Medicine. We're very lucky today to have a a great guest, Dr. Justin Harrell, one of the most broadly trained physicians that I've ever met, one of the best physicians I've ever met. He's a family practitioner and an an emergency physician with a unique story to tell. We're excited to have him here today. How are you? I'm good. Happy to be here. Excellent. Excellent. Um, You are a family practitioner by training and you did a lot of extra stuff that we're going to get to. And you've been working here in your home community for a number of years now. When did you come back as a physician to Uh, Coffee County? I came back to Douglas in 2009. 2009. And you, where did you do your undergrad after high school? So I I started off at University of Georgia, um, then went to the Medical College of Georgia, then stayed at the Medical College of Georgia, and then East Tennessee State after that. And so when you finished residency, you, you didn't go right back here to practice, did you? No, no, no. I, um, well, to back up a second, since you mentioned University of Georgia, um, I happened, I played football in high school. I was not great, but good enough that I, I had a chance to play some in, in college if I had wanted to go down that direction. But I, I felt like medical school was probably a better option than being a tackling dummy for four years, which was about all I could ever hope to be. And I happened to run into a Douglas native, Hamp Tanner, uh, just on the streets of Athens one day. I believe he was in Athens. Um, he may have been up for a football game or maybe he was finishing an NBA. I'm not really sure. And he asked me what I was doing. And um, I, I told him that I was not playing football. And he said, well, you should go out and play rugby. And I was totally bored, not having anything else to do. And so I started playing rugby. The reason that's important is because right after residency, I was still rugby mad, still young enough to be foaming at the mouth about rugby a little bit and decided to go to New Zealand for a year to, to play rugby and practice. And so in New Zealand, you also worked as a physician, correct? That, that's right. That my, my reason for choosing New Zealand, one, it's a beautiful country, um, but despite being landmass wise about twice the size of the state of the uh, state of Georgia population wise a little less than the state of Georgia it still dominates the world rugby scene or at least is extremely competitive with much much larger countries so I chose to go there because of rugby because I wanted to to dip my toe in that arena but I definitely practiced I I was a full-time physician through the the whole time I was there and you did mainly emergency medicine correct no, no. I I, I, I worked I, as uh, a family physician there. I it was extremely rural. Uh, New Zealand, like I said, is a, a landmass wise about twice that. There's two islands. Landmass. Each one of those is about the size of Georgia, but the population is much smaller. So most of the cities there are very small, very rural, and so you kind of end up doing everything. Um, the main pra- pra- place I practiced was a small city called Kakohi, and the nearest true hospital was about two and a half hours away. Um, so we really operated an emergency department. I mean, we could intubate, we could code people, we could do whatever we needed to do uh, in that office that really ran kind of like an office urgent care ER. Um, I even got to drive an ambulance uh, quite a bit whenever I was on call because there was one ambulance for that two and a half hour territory. And uh, if that ambulance was out somewhere else, then I got to hop in the ambulance and 
go take care of people on the road. How long were you there? I was there for a year. Year. So you were playing professional rugby? Oh no, or? no, I, I uh, not not on that uh, stance. That those those days were behind me. I had a, a a very brief chance. I wouldn't say it was professional, but to get paid to play rugby right after college, and the same thing. I, I kind of figured medicine was probably a better career path than than taking a lot of time off to uh, uh, to try to to try to make money playing rugby. But I did play throughout just socially throughout med school and residency and, and played kind of on the side. But medicine was definitely the, the main reason I was there. That, that was my full-time job. The, the, the rugby was very social and very low level compared to the professional job. But you made a lot of contacts in the rugby world, as I would assume. Well, I, you know, um, I met a lot of interesting people while I was doing that. Um, it's really strange when I would talk to the people that I was playing rugby with and they kind of, you know, we would talk about where I was from. Um, I, I, I don't know why, but I tell them I'm from the state of Georgia in the United States and they all wanted to know if I knew the rapper Ludacris. They just <laughs> assumed that, that somehow we were, we were in the same spot. Uh, and they were all huge uh, wrestling fans as well. But anyway. Well, we actually ran into the rugby team from I can't remember it. France. They were from France, France, actually, when Mm -hmm. we were in Bermuda once. And not only were they huge fans and all this, they were huge people also. (laughs) They were were giants. I I guess they were over there for a a match or something. Yeah, they had an international uh, tournament, and we were there for a dental conference with my old dental school classmates, and all these rugby teams were staying at the same hotel with us. They were all very nice and they're famous people in their world, you know. Right. I think they were actually the older teams, the people that used to play pro in kind of mm-hmm. an older league, you know. But right. so, so they were just having a blast. They were having a big time. Very interesting people. So when you were in New Zealand, you did everything. You had these enormously long transport times of patients. I presume you would have to go to car wrecks and any any good stories from that time. I mean, not good. I mean, bad for the patients, but certainly it it helped season you in the ways of rural emergency medicine and emergency, standalone emergency medicine. Uh, absolutely, it's um, very different to practice when not only do you have limited referral sources because it was it really was two and a half hours away to get to another physician but you were also very limited just in hands there were when i was on call and essentially running the night shift emergency department there there wasn't a nurse with me it was just me so i did everything i started the ivs i I put in foley catheters i pulled up and pushed drugs i said i even drove the ambulance quite a few times so um, it's it's a different way to practice, and it definitely is humbling. But um, as much as we could do interventionally there, uh, diagnostically, we did not have a lot of options. The nearest uh, place to get an X-ray was in a slightly smaller, or excuse me, slightly larger town, about an hour away. So if we wanted to do an ultrasound or X-ray or anything like that, you had to transfer for those tests as well, and um, it, it definitely changed your decision tree. Uh, trying to trying to determine are you going to put this family in a car chasing somebody down just to just to get a chest x-ray it makes you um, rely on your clinical skills a lot more than you really have to in in modern medicine and you were right out of residency i was right out of residency <laughs> so the experience level was yes not it, quite it, there yet no, it was not. It, it was an eye-opening experience, and kind of that guided what kind of what I did down the down the road. That kind of guided the next step was seeing some of those difficulties and appreciating how difficult it was to practice in that environment. Um, there were thankfully uh, other physicians in most of the places that I worked, um, and these people were from all over the world. There's um, a fairly big brain drain, if that's the appropriate term, because if you are trained as a physician in New Zealand, you have licensed reciprocity with Australia. 
but they have different currencies and the Australian dollar is worth about 30 to 40% more than the New Zealand dollar, at least it was at the time. And the pay for physicians in New, in Australia was 10 to 20% more at the time than they were getting paid in New Zealand. So a huge number of people that were trained in New Zealand, you could go do the same job going in Australia for 50 to 100% more than what you would make in New Zealand. So they really recruited and really had to pull people from all over the world to fill those spots. Uh, so it, it was one of the, besides being in a beautiful country and seeing how medicine is practiced in another part of the world, it was also nice to see people of very different experiences, very different training systems that kind of got them to the same place. I definitely learned a lot from those guys. It's it's an interesting point you make. One of and the same thing exists. A lot of physicians that train in other areas of the world eventually make their way to the United States. They do residencies here and want to practice here for economic reasons, political reasons. And one of the best resident physicians I ever met when I was a very young resident was a, a fellow that had already trained in South Africa. And everybody there does two years after after school. They do six months of pediatrics, six months of internal medicine, six months of surgery, and six months of obstetrics, and then you're a GP. And he was already that over there and taking out, doing open cholecystectomies and appendectomies on his own in the middle of nowhere. You know, he's just a, a fantastic doctor. And ended up doing residency where I did residency here in the United States and became an internist. So you you bring up a good point about these rural environments. You, you were very much alone and I've often told people, and you seem to have even more experience with it than me, the loneliest feeling, the very definition of loneliness is a critically ill child in a single coverage ER in the country, and you're the guy there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is, I know you know what I'm talking about. Oh, absolutely. And it uh, sounds absolutely. like it's really even magnified over there. Well, there, there are quite a few patients that I have vivid recall of when I was in New Zealand, but one that stands out in, in response to what you just said was a probably three or four year old that came in with fever and cough, uh, clinically highly suspected of pneumonia. But again, the chest x-ray is, you know, at least an hour away and that's only certain days of the week. Uh, so I ended up treating this child with antibiotics and the next day, maybe two days later, child comes back in absolutely critically ill and um, came back in in the middle of the night when there are no other hands on deck. And the child was definitely septic, uh, ended up putting in a chest tube for a big empyema and putting in a blind chest tube in a four-year-old while you're waiting on the helicopter to come land, you know, three or four blocks away and you have to put this child in the ambulance by yourself. That is absolutely an incredibly lonely feeling. And it definitely makes you go back and, and question, Oh, was I aggressive enough two days ago? Um, but that's a very hard decision. It's a very hard decision to put people in. This was an incredibly poor area and the family had no way to get this child to, to get an x-ray two days before. Child was not, did not look ill at that time. Uh, my my decision might have been different if I had an X-ray available, but um, you know there there was no way to get them there other than calling a helicopter to send someone for a chest X-ray, and that's 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 hard to do. That's a hard call to make. I've worked in some very small emergency departments in Alabama and Georgia and. But that's even more remote than anything I've done. I, I, mm-hmm. I know you know the feeling, though, when you've been working on somebody for a couple of hours and you have a, uh, arrangements made for transfer and you finally hear the helicopter. It's a beautiful sound, isn't oh, it? It definitely is. It definitely is. You're just like, please get this person to a great big mm-hmm. hospital with a lot of ologists. That's right. <laughs> but in response to that, of course, hindsight's always twenty twenty. I mean, and we say that a lot, you know, when you're taking care of somebody, you're just doing the best that you can there in that moment, right. you know, so, and you said you were wondering if you should have been more aggressive. I mean, well, it, you, do. you have to consider everything. Uh, you, you do, you definitely do it, but it's just a very hard, 
it's something that we take for granted here. It's so easy. It's a click of a button to get a chest X-ray, and it's it's it definitely changes your decision tree when you have to put people with no resources. You have to get them, the whole family. You have to find them a way to drive an hour away, and then you have to get the results of your chest X-ray. It's it's it, it was a rough system. It was it was tough. That, that's interesting because I didn't realize I. I'd always heard bits and pieces of your New Zealand stories, but I didn't realize you were alone. You had mm-hmm. to drive the ambulance. I mean, how did you even know where to go? Well, there there was a uh, kind of a 911 response. It wasn't 911. I don't remember what the number was that they called, but uh, there was a response like operator that uh, that sent you where you needed to go. And there was another ambulance. They called it the the St. John's service, I believe. And um, there was usually a paramedic and the, really a weekend course to be literally a weekend to be the kind of equivalent of an EMT. And you could go drive the ambulance. And, and a good bit of that was volunteer. But you had one ambulance for the area all the time. But occasionally, um, occasionally other things happen. There, I do remember driving along a mountain road in this little RAV4 that had been retrofitted to be an ambulance. Um, and looking down on the side of this mountain and not being able to see the bottom of the hill, driving about 70 miles an hour, trying to get to this accident and thinking, I really better slow down because if I drive off the side of this mountain, there's nobody to come get me. I'm, I'm the last line here. Wow. The, you know, well, they were lucky to have you. You're an excellent <laughs> doctor, but it sounds like you learned quite a bit that year. I, I did. You know, I learned, uh, I both added a lot of knowledge that year, but also kind of learned some deficiencies in my knowledge if I was going to practice in that environment because it's residency in the United States. I, I did residency at MCG where there were, there was every specialty available imaginable. That's, that's a phone call away and you have tons of resources. You have tons of people that you can kind of lean on and to go from that to really having no help at all was a was a big jump. A that, big jump. That is a good point. You know, most physicians in the United States train in big cities, That's great right. big hospitals, just like I did, just like you did. You have every specialist on demand. It's it's nothing to daily talk to pediatric neurosurgeons or this type of chest surgeon or you know that type of of kidney specialist, and yet. 80% of the medical care in the country is delivered in community centers, not That's in right. these great big... So you leave those places when you're done with training and you go work wherever it is you're going to work. So you left New Zealand, came home, and then you did something very interesting. You did a, a more training another year, a fellowship year. Tell us about that. So there was a, a Kellogg grant uh, that funded a fellowship. It was not an accredited fellowship in that, that you didn't get any additional certification for this, but it was literally a rural medicine fellowship. And their goal was to get people to practice in rural Appalachia. That's where the, the, the kind of their funding and their mission was. Um, but it was an additional year and you kind of got to make up your own curriculum. And that was one of the things that drew me to it was I'd done this year in New Zealand. I saw some things that I maybe wasn't as comfortable with as I wanted to be. And uh, I got to kind of fill in those blanks as, 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 I, as I wanted to. So I spent a good bit of time in an ICU taking care of critically ill patients. I spent some more time with pediatrics. I spent a ton of time in the emergency department. I did a ton of time um, doing... Uh, doing scopes, doing EGDs and colonoscopies. And then I spent a good bit of time teaching as well, which was uh, very uh, interesting and rewarding as as being the son of two teachers. I I really enjoyed that experience as well. And so you finished that, it was a year, correct? That's right. It was a year. And then you came home. And then I came back to Douglas. That's right. Then you're finally a doctor back home (laughs) and everybody's so happy you're here. And You've since that time you've done. Tell us about your experiences since then. Uh, well, when I first came back to Douglas, um, I was primarily in a private practice with one other physician, one other physician, and 
uh, we covered inpatients. We uh, saw patients in the office, uh, did colonoscopies and EGDs, and then I worked a couple of weekends a month in the emergency department as well. I stayed pretty busy from from the get-go, almost immediately after coming back to town. Got back home, did it feel like a breeze compared to what you had been doing? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, well, there's so many, there's so many changes. I, I won't say that it was a breeze because there, there's some nice things about New Zealand too. Um, you know, it's a, it's a British system. So at three o'clock it's tea time and everybody stops and you're going to have tea and biscuits and it doesn't matter unless somebody is dying, you are stopping for tea and biscuits. And the, the pace here is a little bit, uh, a little bit faster than it was in New Zealand. Uh, but it was definitely nice to have other physicians and have, uh, some di more diagnostic capabilities and having having some other I won't say modern medicine because what they do is very modern but it's very rural and limited so it was definitely a, it was a big it was a big change of pace that I enjoyed and you do still see some private practice patients you right. do endoscopy still upper right. uh, stomach endoscopy and colon and uh, colon colonoscopies a couple of days a week, but you now primarily do emergency medicine, correct? That's correct. Yeah, I kind of moved more into the emergency department. It just, uh, at this stage in my life, it um, allowed me to spend a little bit more time with my family. There's a long interface between family medicine and emergency medicine, particularly right. as relates to rural environments. That, And if you look at workforce surveys and things like that, there's never going to, least for the foreseeable future. There's not going to be a situation in the United States where, especially in rural areas, we have enough emergency medicine physicians that are that did a residency in emergency medicine to move to places that are rural and underserved, smaller hospitals, to fill all of those spots. There will always be general practitioners, family practitioners, internists, and things like that, at least for the foreseeable future in the United States, to work in these rural emergency rooms. And that's why your pathway is so unique and such an intriguing story to me because right out of residency, you went and worked in a really rural environment, saw what it's like, and came home and said, hey, I need to do a little more training and then focused your career since then on this. So, and it is different working in a rural environment as opposed to a large inner city hospital because there are a there's a lot of times that you're kind of taking care of the patient for a longer period of time and there's delays in transfer and delays in getting the patient admitted and, and things like that. So I, I do believe there's a lot of overlap between family medicine, internal medicine, and emergency medicine in the country that does not exist in the cities per se. I mean, do you see that same situation? Oh, that's, that's definitely true. Definitely. And there's, um, you know, you, you end up doing, uh, just an, as an example, you end up doing vent management in the emergency department, even if you're trying to transfer this patient. Um, if there's bad weather and you can't fly someone and you have sent another patient out somewhere else, you, you may be managing that patient for hours and hours. And in a tertiary facility, that really doesn't happen. Those those patients are going to see the pulmonologist very quickly, and it's just as an example. But there, I think it goes a little bit more, a little bit beyond that as well. Um, just the way the emergency department functions in a in a place like Douglas, we end up doing management of blood pressure medications frequently. And if you are not kind of well-versed in the current therapy for, for blood pressure, it's, you, you've got a gap in your knowledge. You're, you're not meeting what that patient needs because they, they're probably not going to see a primary care physician in the next week. They're, you're, you better get them by for the next month and you better have a good idea of how to do that or, or the patient's going to suffer in that. Well, and not only are they not going, they may not even have access to go. I mean, I know when we were out of town and Mark had a retinal detachment, and the, it was on a Friday afternoon, and I just, you know, I got on my phone and Googled and 
found an ophthalmologist and he looked in his eye and he's like, yeah, I can't really see. There's some blood, but y'all can just see your ophthalmologist when you get home. And I'm like, negative. You don't understand. Like there's, that doesn't happen where we live. You don't, we don't have an ophthalmologist. (laughs) (laughs) You don't just run home and see one tomorrow or even Monday. And so we, we were up in Tennessee and we ended up having to go over to Knoxville and thank God they fixed it. But so thank God that we were there when it happened, because I don't know what we would have done here. But, yeah, I don't think people understand that, that, like you said, they're not going to see a primary care doctor in the next week or day or two. And to me, it's different, like working in Birmingham in the ER. We're calling whatever service, admitting the patient in. Click, done, gone. Some resident comes down and deals with it. Here, it's more you're calling the admitting guy. There's a lot of conversations Sometimes a lot of back and forth. Do they really need to be here? Do you, what do you think I should do? I mean, I think there's a lot more bouncing back and forth here. Uh, there's a lot of blurring of the lines down here. That, that's true. That, there are, there's some good and bad with that. I do think that being in a smaller community hospital, I think we have a fairly collegial relationship with the hospitalist and the internist family medicine guys in the community when you're looking when you're working in the emergency department. And I think those relationships uh, can be a little more adversarial in these big tertiary facilities because you're, you're calling them with business. You're making them work. And yes. there, there's sometimes a little bit of pushback from that uh, that, I, that I don't see in a place like Douglas, Georgia. Correct. And it's, it's just a really different feel. I don't know. You have to kind of experience it hard to put into words sometimes, but it really is quite different. And I do think that, like I've read, that for the foreseeable future, I think this is going to exist. So I think that people like you and your influence on trainees in the future, and you were talking about how you were teaching up there, is very, very important. And I think your story is very important because it's, it's just a different world in the country. Right. Uh, it is. It is. I, I will. I know we're, we're kind of talking about rural medicine, but I do think an interesting thing to talk about to get back to New Zealand for just a moment um, is they the system there is much different than it is in the United States. And they do have a form of universal health care. All these different countries, when you um, when you hear about socialized medicine, that doesn't mean the same thing everywhere. And the way they do things there, and this is a little bit of an oversimplification, is everyone has kind of government-sponsored insurance. And it, you can elect to buy private insurance if you want to. Uh, not a huge number of people do that, uh, but you, you can. It is available there. And basically, everyone has fairly rapid access to primary care. You can get in to see a primary physician relatively quickly with little to no cost, depending on where you are. As a physician, you do have some say on kind of what the copay is, but the main portion of what you are paid comes from the government. Um, They also have a single formulary where they basically have a list of medications. Those are the medications that are available and those are the ones that are paid for by the government. And the drug companies really, the other medications are not available, even if you did want to go off of that formulary and pay for those medications because the drug companies don't go through the effort to get them approved in that country if they don't make it onto the formulary. It's just there's not a the cost benefit doesn't work out for them, which can be a negative in some ways if there's a, a specific um, drug that you want to use. But for the most part, it kind of makes things simple. You don't have to choose between five different ARBs and 10 different ACE inhibitors. You just have what you what the, what is on their formulary. And if you want to see a specialist physician, that, that is also paid for uh, by the government. And, and everyone has access to that. The downside to that is your wait time for a specialist physician may be quite a long time. 
And one of the other patients that I remember very vividly was uh, an older female. I believe she was probably in her early 60s, early 70s, um, that came into this clinic with hematuria. Uh, she'd had this symptom for about six months. One of the other physicians in the practice had seen her at the onset of this hematuria, had ordered a CT scan, and had referred her to a urologist six months prior. Neither of those things had happened because the wait time was somewhere around a year to get in to see a urologist. Uh, when she came in to see me, uh, her hematuria had significantly increased. She was starting to have some signs of symptoms from blood loss. And she fortunately had the means, she had the, the money to pay for an ultrasound and also had the means to travel about an hour away to get an ultrasound. So she had an ultrasound of the bladder, she had several large tumors in her bladder. Once I had that information, I was able to call the urologist and say, hey, this, this person, I think she probably has transitional cell carcinoma of the bladder. Can you see her sooner? And two to three weeks later, she saw the urologist. In the United States, if you have access, that whole process is going to happen very quickly. Six months down the road, you're not still going to be waiting for a urology referral. Um, so there's, there's two sides to that system, but it is, it's at least an interesting thing to think about the differences between the two systems. Um, I, I think if you are uninsured or underinsured, you would be much better off in that sort of system, much better off. Um, if you have access, if you have good health insurance and you have, you know, you're, you're, you have the means you're definitely better off in the United States. There's, there's no question about it. That's an interesting topic also, because in the United States, we've had hyper-specialization. So, yes, they have increased the number of physicians, but when you consider that now we have neurovascular interventionalism, these kinds of things that didn't even exist when I was in training, that, that person only does that thing. And so... Really, even though he's a very, very important person, as you not, it doesn't really increase the number of physicians available to see the population. And the population in the United States has increased dramatically. In 1995, it was 250 million. Now it's 330, 340 million, whatever it is. And we've hyper-specialized. So we've diluted the whatever increase in number of physicians is even less relative when you consider the population increase. So one of the things that I see happening is the, the ballooning number of nurse practitioners and physician's assistants that are filling in the spaces. Great. Some of them are brilliant, but they're still not going to have the training path that you had or I had. And so I know you do a lot of, you had talked about education fellowship, but y'all also teach a lot of nurse practitioners at the office and the hospitals. So how do you see that impacting care in the United States now? Expanding number of nurse practitioners and physicians assistants. That's that's very interesting. I, I don't know how that's gonna play out. I, I'm really not sure. Um there there are two sides to that as well. I, I keep saying that there's two sides to a lot of this stuff, but one of the issues there is the, the initial selling point around nurse practitioners in primary care is we're going to push out these nurse practitioners. They're going to work for less than you're going to work for, and they're going to go to all these areas where people don't want to go practice. And they're going to go fill in these, these blanks in rural areas, and they're going to provide care that the people wouldn't otherwise get. Um, but the reality is the things that keep nurse practitioners from living in rural underserved areas are the same things that keep physicians from living in rural underserved areas. And now you see a lot of nurse practitioners and PAs. As a matter of fact, I don't know any PAs that are working in any primary care specialty at all. Um, I do know quite a few nurse practitioners, but I, I know a ton of nurse practitioners that are working with orthopedists and that are 
working with cardiothoracic surgeons and they're not doing that in rural areas. So there's still some disparity between where service is provided, even when you add nurse practitioners into the equation. So I went to Georgia Southern, which is one of the better nurse practitioner programs in Georgia. And I mean, they preached to us, we are training y'all to work in the primary care office. That's where we're training y'all to work. We're not training y'all to work in the ICU, in the ERs, in the specialty clinic. I mean, they just preach that over and over and over. But like you said, that's not really where most of them are working. And I think for me, like, and I try to tell Mark this, I'm like, you know, since I worked in pediatrics for eight years and I was with one doctor and I learned, sure, I thought for myself, but I also learned how he likes to do things or whatever, you know, then I think it clicked along pretty well. But whenever you start, you know, expecting them to do things that they're not trained to do and there's not really that relationship with the doctor, I think as a nurse practitioner, that's what kind of worries me. Well, the the other thing, and I, I'm sure there are some very smart nurse practitioners and instructors that would disagree with me on this, but just from watching people coming out of training, most nurse practitioners are not ready to see patients independently on day one out of school. Well, I actually agree with what you said. They're not ready to work on their own when they first graduate. And again, I went to one of the better programs, but my job was not equivalent to yours when you're in New Zealand by any stretch. But for some reason, the doctor I worked with was very trusting of me. <laughs> and it would be things like, I'm deep sea fishing, have a great day, you know, the end. But thankfully for me, I had Mark that I could call, which is kind of where the idea of this came from. But I mean, and but I mean, I called him about everything to the point I still remember when he's like, do not call and ask me how to prescribe amoxicillin one more time because you know that and like I don't think he talks to anybody that way but I had probably asked it like 700 times by because you know we were seeing 100 patients a day by myself I mean I, I can still remember the train wrecks that I had in week one while he was off deep sea fishing and so you know it's that would be very scary like if I would not have had Mark to fall back on and and I and I had I worked with a great doctor and all that, so that's not the issue. But you know, some of them don't have good relationships with the doctor they work with, or I don't know if the doctors, I don't know if say like in hospitals programs or whatever that they're able to have that oversight or whatever that is meant to be there. And that would be I don't I don't think I would do it. I would be far too nervous and scared. I mean, so I anybody's listening. I hope that they're always quick to ask, ask questions and ask for help and understand that you're probably not prepared. And honestly, even after eight years of doing it, even my last week, I was still asking either Mark questions or the doctor questions. I mean, there's just stuff that we don't know. Well, I, I graduated almost 20 years ago. I graduated from medical school almost 20 years ago, and there's still a learning curve. There's still things that I learn every day. You do, one of the advantages to the, the physician model is you do have kind of a graduated independence. You start off as an intern, and I still remember my first night of call as an intern where the nurse, I'm sure, knew what to do with this patient, but called me about a fever. And I remember the 30-minute internal discussion I had with myself about whether I should prescribe Tylenol or not. And you're just so nervous, and you, but you had lots of people to, to fall back on and you, you get more and more independence as you move through residency or, or fellowship or whatever those, that portion of your training is. is and and you, you are kind of getting that on the job as a nurse practitioner, which is from a primary care standpoint is very difficult because we have had to deal with Quite a few people who have come in and have started working in primary care, and we've spent a great amount of time trying to add to their training, trying to give them experience, and trying to get them to the point of being, I won't say independent, but collaborative. And then once that year or two has gone by and they have a couple of years of experience under their belt, then they go 
off for greener pastures in some specialty that pays more money than primary care does because it's it, not a lucrative position relative to yeah, well, and Mark's even said before, he's like, when I think about it, what you did was almost like a mini residency. And it, it it was not, okay, but it kind of was because I was there for eight years and I was able to train in this one area, you know. And so by the end of it, sure, I was a lot more comfortable and confident or whatever. But yeah, and unless you do that, I, I could not imagine walking out on my own as a nurse practitioner. What's so interesting to me in the rural areas, and I've often said this, and I think you recognize this in in New Zealand, came back, did more training. I've often said that that is when you are alone in a very small place, that's where you need the best doctors, the most intelligent and aggressive and and functional physicians because you are alone. I remember being in a very small emergency room with a, a child that had to be a eight, seven, eight, nine, I don't remember how intubated for asthma. Horrible weather for hours managing this child on the ventilator. I, I don't remember the last time I did a pressure controlled vent management. Well I do remember it was that. You know, I mean and and you're looking stuff up and reading you get through and the kid lived and the kid gets sent off to a tertiary care center when the weather clears and is extubated the next day and lives. And But man, you talk about loneliness and challenge. It's, it can be very challenging. It sounds like you recognize that. It's, you can be lulled into a false sense of security because the general acuity in a place like that is in general lower, definitely lower uh, on on average, than in some big tertiary care facility when you're you're intubating every other patient and everyone gets admitted, but when those critical patients come through and they do come through at essentially the same percentage, you're on your own. You don't have a lot of help to call, and it's um, it, it definitely you have to have a different set of skills. Absolutely. Yes, I mean, and you know how it is with a child like that in a large metropolitan hospital. You will have pediatric pulmonologists. You'll have pediatric infectious disease. You'll have the general pediatric service. You'll have respiratory therapists falling on top of respiratory therapists managing this ventilator and all kinds of pediatric nurses that have only done pediatric nursing for a decade or a decade and a half could start an IV on any child, you know. And But when that child starts that process of illness, they're in your hands. And right. uh, again, the, the definition of loneliness. And so it, it is interesting. It's very different working in the country. And I'll tell you, you can be forced to grow up very fast. It, you Definitely you can. It's, um, it, it sounds like you had fun in New Zealand, but you were challenged also. I, I did. There, there, were, there were a ton of challenges. Um, and there were a ton of experiences that you don't quite get here. I, I, I've reduced dislocated shoulders frequently, uh, tons of them. It's a very common rugby injury. And between the uh, a town or an area the size of Coffee County would probably have one men's rugby team in, you know, Nichols would have one men's rugby team in Broxton and two or three in a city the size of Douglas in addition to high school and elementary school teams. And so there were tons of games going on all the time. And um, I've reduced multiple shoulders just on the sideline of a rugby game with the the St. John's crew grabbing some nitrous oxide and throwing them in a sling, and they're back at it in a couple of weeks. That, so there's di- different different experiences that you don't see here. You don't see those kind of things. And that's so funny. As you know, I was a dentist, and we use nitrous oxide all the time in the in the dental clinics and right. in training and a lot of dental offices do, but you don't see it that much in medicine, but they do in other countries quite a right. bit. Right. It's very safe drug, you know, with the fail safe systems that provide oxygen and gone in seconds when you cut it off and you can do a lot of stuff to people painlessly with nitrous. It's interesting that they use that over there like that. I, I don't know what the driving factor behind that is. I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure if it has something to do with uh, the the safety and the 
the lack of need for IV access in that situation because the some of the, the people there, and I, I don't want to be disparaging to any of them because there are some really incredible people and really incredible paramedics on helicopters in New Zealand that 20 years ago that were doing this. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that's still the case now. But just because of necessity, the barrier to entry to be, to get in that position is pretty low. I, I think I mentioned earlier that you can do a weekend course and start driving the ambulance. So I think that may have some of the... Uh, be some of the driving point is you can just turn it on and put a mask on and you're you're done. Well, I know in the United States that the the nitrous systems, at least when I was in school, the least amount of oxygen you could deliver was thirty percent. So they are incredibly safe. You can't make somebody hypoxic. Right. So it's cheap and it's really safe. You can do it with a minimal amount of training. I can see the utility of it in situations like you're describing over there. No IV no worry about getting somebody too deep. Very good for brief procedures. Very, very little risk. So it sounds like there are some some big minds over there trying to protect the population and still get them cared for at the same time. Things are things are a little different. Um, even the language you had to take a language course, despite being a native English speaker, and that's the the majority language there. I don't know if they have an official language or not, but, um, you know, there, there are always a, a few little differences. And one of the things that I really remember is the term fanny is slang for vagina there. So you kind of, you have to learn a few things that uh, <laughs> you don't, you don't want to use that out of context. Well, right. I was actually wondering about the language barrier, but I was, I didn't ask cause I thought, I don't know the native language there. So. Yeah. They're, they're, they're English speakers. Yeah. It's, it's was colonized by the British and um, they, they have a very unique accent that's different from Australia and different from, from England, but it's, it's still English. But I would like to go back to the point that you made earlier about, when you were talking to Amanda about learning something every day, I'm what, 25 plus years into this now. There's not a day that goes by that I don't see something I've never seen before. There's not a day that goes by that I don't utilize every bit of my training. And, and often days go by and I go, I wish I had more training. <laughs> and so, you know, but at some point you actually do have to quit training and actually go help people. Uh, or, or we wouldn't have enough doctors, you know. I mean, That's so right. it, it is, it is uh, an interesting life. It is. Having true. said that, I think I speak for most everyone that listens to us that we would all, if we show up at the ER and it's Dr. Harold there or, you know, Mark there, it's like, thank God. I mean, thank God. So y'all's training provides much comfort to the people of our community. Well, we appreciate that, but sometimes it's uncomfortable for us. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> well, you have quite a story and you have quite a history and a unique take on emergency medicine and its intersection with family medicine and the route of of training and experience that you have is a unique story. You're the only physician I've ever met that has worked abroad, then come back and done further training and moved to a rural environment that not although not as rural as where you were in New Zealand, still fairly rural here. It's better now. We have interventional cardiology and all kinds of stuff that we didn't have here 20 years ago. I really thought you were going to say Publix. I really thought you were going to say we have Publix here. Two days, two days. <laughs> two, days two days it opens. But um, it's yeah. really, I, hey, I've read that's going to improve our quality of life. So we'll see. <laughs> so, I literally read that. <laughs> Well, it's, um, it's a great story you have. It's a great history you have. You've certainly taken all the things you've experienced and learned and helped so, so many people that we know, people that we don't know, just traveling through and whatnot. But Douglas is a unique place. There's no big interstate through here. There's no highway or rapid way to get to a big city from here. So in a lot of ways, where we are is uniquely situated with your training and experience, you are probably the perfect doctor to work in our emergency department. And the people of this community, thank you. I thank you for being here uh, today. It's a great story. I wanted people to hear your story because of its uniqueness. And I, there's just not enough good things to say about Dr. Harrell. I, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Well, I think well, it's, we, uh, 
Uh, it's definitely more than I deserve. <laughs> I, I don't know. We didn't even get into this, and I won't take us down this route, but I actually did some clinical experience with you at Douglas Medical Specialist, and I learned a lot when I was there. So you've you've helped a lot of providers also. Well, Douglas is a uh, good place to learn because we have no shortage of pathology. That no is a shortage. very true statement. But it is a great story, and I'm sure you look back on a lot of your training and experience fondly, although it's challenging at the time. You look back and go, wow, glad I got to do that. I, I do. I um, don't know how I'm going to fit this in my life, but I really would love to go back and do locums in New Zealand again uh, at, with uh, now a little more experience under my belt and a, a different set of experiences. It is... Um, I look back at residency and things like that, being awake from Friday morning till Monday night, effectively. And at the time, I just thought you can't even survive this. But I look back and go, it was great. You know, you're it was where will you ever have those kinds of experiences again? You won't. You no. can't. That's one of the reasons I think I ended up in family medicine because I, I felt the same way. With a couple of exceptions, I enjoyed everything that I did after the second year of med school, after we got out of the classroom and into the hospital. Every every month was fun. I had, I had a good time every month. Well, thank you for being here. Thank you for your past history and experiences and applying them to our people today. Well, thanks for having me. Joe Rogan's got nothing on you, too. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'd like to thank Dr. Harrell for coming and recording with us and talking about rural medicine and telling his incredible story of his time in New Zealand. And I, if you're listening, Dr. Harrell, we sure hope that we get to see you go and do that locums time there that you're looking forward to doing. Yes, he is a really uniquely trained physician to practice rural emergency medicine and rural medicine in general. It's it's actually a fascinating topic, rural medicine in the United States. There's about 6,000 hospitals in, in America, and about 1,800 of those are considered to be rural. Now, lots of these hospitals are quite small, about 25 beds. They provide a lot of primary care and a lot of long-term care, and only about 20% of Americans live in rural areas, yet two-thirds of the primary care provider shortages in the United States of America are in these rural areas. So the lack of health care is greatly overrepresented in rural areas relative to metro and suburban areas. There are very special challenges related to the provision of rural health care. The population is generally older. They're in poorer health. If you look at lifespan statistics of metropolitan Americans versus rural Americans, metropolitan living Americans, um, have about 2.5 years longer lifespan than rural Americans. The There's a total lack of specialty care generally in these facilities. Sometimes you'll have some specialists, a general surgeon, maybe an orthopedist, uh, maybe some eye doctors come in and out, but rarely do you have full-time specialty care. Oftentimes what you have in these small hospitals is a generalist, a family practitioner, an internist, a pediatrician, Maybe they'll be covering the ER and the inpatient services. It's a very unique skill set. It's a very unique set of challenges to work in these places. And I think Dr. Harrell stated it best. I mean, certainly he went to an area that's even less fortified with specialist and and technology than we have here in rural areas of the United States. And it is amazing when you get a doctor that is as highly trained as he is, as highly experienced as he is, as uniquely experienced and trained as he is to provide care in an area like we live. What, what a resource and an asset. He is quite amazing that this community has him, and we're very grateful for that. Yes, absolutely, and I meant it whenever I said that, you know, we— in our area, we choose doctors like Dr. Harrell and you and some of the other guys that y'all work with. We would choose y'all any day over some physicians in some larger areas because I think that y'all do have a much broader skill set, honestly. And I think one of the reasons is because there is a lack of primary care, not just in our area, but like you said, in rural areas. And so, you know, you see the signs and the 
things like this online that say, you know, don't go to the ER for a cold or whatever, but it's really easier said than done in our area. So y'all do end up treating everything from a cold to an acute heart attack and y'all end up treating all ages from just a couple of days old to, you know, end of life. And so I think that that experience really helps, you know, it, I think that that's comforting for us to know that we're going to a provider that's very highly trained and experienced and that can deal with most anything. And it is a unique aspect of rural emergency medicine that oftentimes the patient will be there for what some would consider a non-emergent condition. I just actually today had a conversation with a specialist in another town about a patient that I could tell the specialist on the other end of the phone, an incredibly great doctor. I could just hear that physician wondering, why is this person in the ER? And I said, and I answered the question, I said, they're not here because they're so acutely ill. They're here because they don't have another avenue to seek care to get to someone like you. I'm literally the only person, not meaning me, but I mean the ER physician in, in wherever they are is the only person that can get in touch with you to get this person the care that they need because they can't pick up the phone and get through to you by self-referral and things like that. Yeah, that's it, just our reality. That's the reality that we live in here in our area. But, and it is rural emergency medicine is, is very unique. You often, and this is debated in, in the medical literature that I read about, do we really need these hospitals? Do we really need full service hospitals in small areas? And they have changed some of the designation. There are now something called um, emergency, uh, rural emergency hospitals, I think is what the designation is. And basically what those very, very small hospitals are is an emergency department and an observation unit. And they don't do elective surgery and they don't do inpatient admissions. It's basically a stabilization center, much like Dr. Harrell was talking about in New Zealand, but of course more technology than he had available. And they will stabilize these patients, maybe observe them, do a few rounds of antibiotics, whatever, over a 24 to 48 hour period. And then if they need to go to a bigger hospital, they have transfer agreements in place to send them to larger facilities. But rural emergency departments are very unique and they're very necessary. We stabilize heart attacks and sepsis and other causes of shock and anaphylaxis. We manage acute airway problems and respiratory failure. And oftentimes these types of conditions, wouldn't these people would not survive to get to a larger city. Or maybe even if you did get an ambulance there, imagine trying to do some of the things that we do in the emergency department in the back of an ambulance going 85 miles an hour down the road, bouncing up and down. It's just, it's really difficult. It's difficult enough in the emergency department. I can't even imagine doing it in the back of an ambulance. So I do believe that these rural hospitals and these small ERs have a very vital place in our in our American lifestyle. There are farms and railroads and trucking companies and things like this out in these rural places and some manufacturing and things like that that don't exist in other parts of America. And these people have work injuries and they have trauma and they have car wrecks and they have penetrating trauma and things, obstetrical emergencies in their family members. They have children that have pediatric illnesses and injuries that have to be seen and stabilized. And sometimes they can be managed at the small hospitals and sometimes they have to be managed at tertiary care centers. So you do develop unique skill sets. You do develop relationships with specialists at these larger facilities that you may not develop if you work in a big metropolitan center or a large suburban center. You're you are kind of like part of the machine. And hey, it's a really good machine. I'm not I'm not dissing the machine at all. But it's just a different medical model and lifestyle. And it is it is challenging and yet rewarding. Well it's one of my favorite things to do when I can find a way to work my grandmother into a conversation. And, you know, Vanita Milholland, I remember when she was sick and you had to transfer her to a larger hospital and she had to go. We didn't have a choice. But once we were there and she was stabilized, I just remember her looking at me saying, I'm ready to go back home. I'm going to end up dying here if I don't. You know, there's no place like home. She's like, get me back to the hospital where Mark's at. There really is something to be said for that small community type care that you receive in a hospital because there's a lower patient to staff ratio in a lot of time you know a lot of times and also a lot of times 
you end up knowing the patients in one way or the other, or maybe you know their family members or whatever, and it's just a different type of, you receive a different type of care. And of course, she wasn't dying there. They were just doing necessary procedures that couldn't be done here. So her perception of that was, oh my gosh, this is horrible, but it was necessary. They did save her life. Well, there was nothing like their ICU. It was the most phenomenal place on earth. It was the best place that we could be, but once she was transferred back to the regular medical floor I remember looking out of the doorway into the hallway and it looked like it stretched five miles and there were like 7,000 other patient rooms and I was like you know I agree with you it's time for us to go home. Yes it's it is a different world and every every part of this medical puzzle has a place the tertiary care centers and the university centers and the training centers with the subspecialty surgeons and the and the necessary interventionalists that can do such amazing things for strokes and heart attacks and stuff like that today that couldn't even be done anywhere 30 years ago is is they are amazing places and we also have a place in the rural areas to get those patients to those facilities and there's a lot of stuff we can handle here douglas is certainly not a tiny tiny rural hospital we have a lot of technology but there are still things every day that we have to send to bigger places. Right. But again, there's there's no place like home and we are extremely lucky to have Coffee Regional Medical Center and all that it offers right here in our hometown. And we certainly appreciate Dr. Harold being with us tonight and we appreciate his work in this community over the last several years. We really do. Thank you, Dr. Harold. And you can find out more about us at markedmedicine.com. You can go there, click on the Ask Dr. Mark tab. If you have a topic that you would like to hear us talk about, or a story that you would like to tell, reach out to us. We want to hear from you. We want to learn from you. And thank you so much for joining us. We will see you all next week.